Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Morning, Jim. Good to be chatting again. We're going to start today with a discussion of the budget, the upcoming Irish budget annual event, the bane of our lives sometimes, I think. But nevertheless, we're always asked to do all sorts of different things. And this year is no exception. There's three or four weeks to go. I think the date is the 12th. So that must be about three and a half weeks, I reckon. Tell us something about it, Jim. The things that I'm interested in are the way in which the outturn for the public finances always seems to be incredibly different from the one that's forecast. And this is not just having another go at forecasting, but the projections for both spending and taxation always seem to be quite wide of the mark. And I'd be interested in your thoughts about A, why that is the case, and B, the way in which tax revenues in particular are coming in, generally speaking, much stronger than expected and why that is the case. I've obviously got my own thoughts, and I'll share them after you've given us your thoughts. One of the things about budgets, though, that strikes me as being perennial is that we're always talking about the need in general for economies, not least Ireland, but plenty of others, about the need for structural reform. For as long as I've been an economist, the OECD has been writing reports about Ireland and other countries saying structural reforms have huge bang for their buck, and we've grown tired of writing articles and making speeches and giving talks about the need for structural reform, always with the observation, it's just not going to happen, is it? I wonder what you think about that. In the context of the budget, the most obvious reform that would have a huge bang for your buck would be to simply simplify the tax system. 
it is an incredibly complex Byzantine thing that lawyers and accountants rung rings around the uh, the tax authorities in many cases, and a simplified system would produce more revenues for lower cost. I think, and just your thoughts as to why we we just seem institutionally, politically, culturally unable to do the obvious things. But anyway, Jim Powers' thoughts on the budget, please. Right, Chris. Uh, budget on Tuesday, the 12th of October, and within a couple of weeks, the finance bill will be passed through the House, which brings into legislation all of the stuff announced in the budget that is not agreed on budget nights, such as you know when there's an increase in excise duty and alcohol that typically takes effect at midnight on the night of the budget, but there are other changes introduced in the budget that have to go through the finance bill. So, and the process is now already beginning. Uh, yesterday, we had the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council, that's IFAC, uh, coming out with its pre-budget stuff. And it has issued uh, a pretty stark warning to the government about its budgetary situation. Um, it describes the government's current budgetary strategy as risky and that it avoids making hard choices. And this is based on the premise that the summer economic statement that the Department of Finance published in July, uh, Pascal Donoghue said last week, speaking at a different IFAC event, this was an accountancy firm with the same um, initials as the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council, but he said last week that basically the budget would be based on what was contained in the summer economic statement. And the bit that surprised a bit about the um, summer economic statement was the fact that looking at the public finances out to 2025, which the statement did uh, in 2021, a budget deficit equivalent to 5.1% of GDP um, is forecast, okay? It'll probably come out a little bit lower than that. But the point is that by 2025, the government still intends to be running a deficit of around 1.5% of GDP. So running perennial deficits over a five-year period is not something that the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council is happy about. And it has outlined three uh, areas of concern. One, well, I suppose it's, it's, it's all one concern, really. The government has made three commitments, basically. One is to spend a lot more money on investment and capital. The second is to expand public services. And the third piece is to cut taxes. And IFAC clearly believes that uh, attaining all of those three things while maintaining stable public finances uh, is not possible. So it's pretty critical. And this does lay a marker for Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath, the Minister for Public Expenditure, as they prepare the budget over the next three and a half weeks. Uh, you raised a lot of issues in your... Before you, before you yeah. go on to my questions, inevitably I've got another one. Do we care what IFAC says, the second one, not the first one? Because surely one of the things that we've learned, and I speak now as a, as a lay person rather than an economist, surely if I look at what happened during the financial crisis and I look what happened during the pandemic, we can spend and borrow what the heck we like. Why do we? Why do I need to listen to these people that keep warning about the, the perils of government debt when nothing ever happens? We just continue borrowing loads more money and nothing happens. Okay, let's, let's understand the role of the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council. It was set up during the Troika period here. Um, it was one of the conditions of that bailout that we set up an external independent advisory body on the public finances and such a thing exists i think in many different countries so ifac comments it analyzes 
everything to do with the public finances and makes recommendations and issues advice to government. But there is zero obligation on government to take on board what IFAC is saying. And indeed, uh, the track... So what's, record, the, what's the point of IFAC? Well, it, it ticks a box in terms of budgetary oversight, okay? And that's the point. Um, it satisfied something that the Trika insisted on at the time. Um, but it is a box-ticking exercise, and government can turn around and generally does turn around and ignore absolutely everything IFAC is saying. And I've no doubt that's going to happen again. Um, so it's, in, it's in a watchdog with no teeth. It's a watchdog with no teeth, absolutely. And, of course, today and tomorrow it will get a lot of media headlines and analysis and will then be forgotten. At the end of the day, uh, the two ministers will stand up on October 12th and deliver whatever budget they believe is most politically prudent at this stage in the economic and political cycle. In that event, should the budget include the abolition of IFAC and save itself, save the government some money? Well, as I say, it is an external requirement that the Trika lay down. I guess we could turn around and abolish it, but that would not send out a very positive signal about Ireland's fiscal credibility. Because the, the, the reason why, I mean, you, you asked the question there, you know, why don't we just spend um, and cut taxes as much as we want to, uh, particularly given the experience during the COVID period, but also the great financial crash. But uh, the bottom line is we saw back in 2010-11 uh, what can happen in a country that has unsound public finances and where the international investors who buy our government bonds who effectively lend money to the Irish government to fund tax cuts and spending increases. They lost confidence in Ireland in 2011. They wouldn't lend money to Ireland at interest rates that were anything um, like acceptable. So we had no choice at that stage other than to accept the external funding from uh, the Troika, that's the European Commission, the European Central Bank, um, and the International Monetary Fund. Um, and as I say, as part of that, there was a recommendation, sorry, not a recommendation, a directive given that we needed to set up an independent um, external watchdog looking at the public finances. And um, it is a dog without teeth. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but if we turned around and abolished it to save a little bit of money, uh, that would send out very negative signals about our desire to manage the public finances in a prudent way. So listen, uh, don't get hung up on what IFAC is saying because the two ministers won't get hung up about it. They will do what they need to do. So well, should, it be, should, it, should it be given teeth then? Well, let's go the other way. Uh, it should be given teeth, absolutely. But it's never going to be given teeth because that starts to interfere with the political process and the political classes would never accept that. They would well, we took we, we took monetary policy away from feckless politicians and gave it to the central bank. Um, younger listeners won't remember the time when politicians set interest rates, but once upon a time they did, and they made such a hames of it that we decided that technocrats rather than politicians are the only people to be trusted with monetary, with interest rate policy. Uh, are you saying to me, Jim, that the time has come to take fiscal policy away from politicians and because they shouldn't be trusted with it either because they, they won't take advice. They won't take IFAC's advice. Uh, they won't take the IMF's advice unless they're forced into it. And they certainly won't take Jim Power and Chris John's advice about things like structural reform of the taxation system. So what 
is the role of fiscal policy in the modern world? How can it be better constructed? And should it be taken away from politicians? Well, if, if you look at the, the manner in which um, the equivalent of the Minister for Finance is appointed in other countries, in the United States, for example, the Secretary of the Treasury is an external person with expertise in economics and finance that is brought in to run the Department of Finance. So Janet Yellen, the former chairperson of the Federal Reserve, um, is now Secretary of the Treasury. You know, at one stage we had Paul O'Neill, who was the chief executive of, I think it was Alcoa at the time, that was during the Bush presidency. They they do bring in people with expertise, unelected people, to actually run departments of government. Um, and, okay, the US system is not perfect by any means, but um, I, I think it's infinitely preferable to a system where politicians are elected, uh, they, bear, they are allocated to different ministries. And um, it's a long, long time since we had anybody with expertise in economics or finance as means for finance. Uh, but that's the democratic process we live in in this country. Um, ceding control over fiscal policy um, to, to experts, okay, um, is not something that the political process here would contemplate. They would see it as a dilution of our democracy. So you can talk about, and I think it would be a very desirable move, but let's dream on. It's never going to happen. Um, it's not It's not our political process, okay? Okay, um, so what are the top three things that Jim Powell would put in this budget? Well, yeah, you, put you, you on the spot. Yeah, you, you mentioned the point about um, the simplification of the taxation system, and I 100% agree with you on that. Our tax system is incredibly convoluted, complicated, um, and I pretty much believe there are vested interests who like to ensure that that remains the case because accountants and accountancy firms make a lot of money out of doing people's tax returns because most of us are not capable of doing our own tax returns, particularly if they're anyway complicated and different because of the complexity of the tax system. Um, you know, does it make sense to have a PAYE system, a PRSI system and a USC the Universal Social Charge, which was introduced back in 2009, those three operating alongside each other. I mean, surely it should be possible to integrate all those taxes into a single tax system. And um, simplification would work wonders. There, there is no doubt about that. And I think also that if you simplify the tax system, um, you know, if you get rid of a lot of the various allowances and various ways of writing off taxes, uh, you would actually end up collecting more. People would be prepared to pay more because it's it's much more simple system. Uh, but I also, Chris, wouldn't dream on. It's not going to happen. You know, it's been recommended Why by not? so many people. Over so many, because the political will to do it isn't there. And certainly the permanent government would appear to have zero interest in doing it either. So it, it's it's all well and good to be you know, preaching this virtuous stuff about what we should do. But the reality is it ain't going to happen because there's absolutely no willingness amongst the people that will make these things happen to make it happen. That, one that of, the, is reason, one of the reasons is I think that most people find taxation in particular, but fiscal policy in general, um, about as interesting as pensions. And their eyes glaze over, uh, they become bored very quickly. 
partly because of the complexities, partly because the intrinsic nature of the subject is 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 dull. Um, but it's also the complexity, and we we end up talking about the football instead. What's really interesting about this is that um, tax is probably the most important economic thing that happens to anybody. Uh, you know, whatever, wherever you are in life, whether you're a worker, whether you're a pensioner, whether you're a child, whether you're middle aged, you're paying tax at some point in your life, all through your life, actually. And we we don't take enough interest in it, and we need to to, to get more people interested in it. And I think the only way in which we will get that kind of change that never seems to happen, and your forecasting never will happen, is that people like us need to get more people interested. So Eamon Dunphy is very kindly at the moment getting both of us on his show for various reasons, and he always gives our show a plug at the beginning of his podcast, which is very nice of him. So I'm, I'm going to return the favour and give his show a plug, and in particular one that he did this week with me on the history of taxation, a 40-minute chat, very brave to talk about this rather dull uninteresting subject on what is supposed to be a popular podcast be interesting to see how many listeners he gets so thank you for that Eamon and thank you for the plugs that he gives this podcast uh, but you know we, we we have to I think not give up I think we need to bang this drum and um, you know in our small way in our quiet way as loudly as we possibly can and it's all very well saying it's never going to happen but tax is far more important than people realize in their daily lives and it can be done an awful lot better to everybody's benefit. And the, I think one of the benefits of doing, uh, of getting the tax debate more open, more widespread, is that it's a bit like COVID, actually. In the absence of um, people paying attention to the detail, um, all sorts of rubbish and myths and um, apocryphal stories about tax and COVID. So, you know, tax has the equivalent of ivermectin. With you know that horse drug that's uh, doing the rounds of the conspiracy theories for COVID, there's lots of myths about taxation. My favourite in in the Irish context is being um, it's never codified, it's never written down. But over the years, I've spoken to politicians, to civil servants, to people in the media who believe, for example, that the self-employed um, all fiddle the tax system in their favour, and that's why the tax system favours via tax credits and other measures, PAYE workers over the self-employed. It's just one of those myths. Um, It may well have been true 100 years ago, but it certainly isn't true today. There's all sorts of stuff like that. So I'm pushing back a little bit at you, Jim, in the sense that I agree with you. It's most unlikely that things will ever change for the better. But I don't think that's a reason for giving up. Oh, no, it's certainly not, Chris. And um, you talk about that myth about the self-employed always fiddling their tax. Um, unfortunately, that myth still lives in official Ireland. It's what they still believe. And and there was a suggestion last week, for example, that employers' PRSI should be increased again to fund pensions. It came, it came from the trade union movement, I think the ESRI has suggested it as well. I mean, that's just another tax on employment. And and it is really, really treating self-employed people as cheats and pariahs. So that definitely needs to change. But you asked me a question, which I didn't answer yet, about the three things I would do in the budget. The problem is that the budget is an incredibly complicated process in the sense that you are talking about two very large numbers. This year, we're going to collect around 60 billion in taxation. 
we're probably going to spend around 75 billion, a deficit of 15 to 17 billion, okay, will be delivered this year. So you are talking about two very large numbers. And you're also talking about many, many moving parts in those large numbers. And that's why it is so difficult to forecast um, both spending and taxation and ultimately the final budgetary outcome. It's because moving parts and from day to day, things change that have a significant influence. So uh, that's the complication. But one of the things you notice about the budget, and I always say this in my post-budget commentary, with, with the few odd exceptions like 2009, but I would always say this is a budget of lots of small things um, which will make very, very little difference to anybody when they get up the following morning. So what's I, the point? What's yeah, the point exactly, the exactly. What's the point? I totally agree. What I would like to see in a budget is the government actually targeting one or two or three areas and directing a lot of resources at those. And, and to me, the priorities at the moment would be capital investment, Okay, continue to improve the social and physical infrastructure. Secondly, um, I think education needs a massive revamp. And, and one of the problems, of course, is that there, there is a belief out there that the way to solve a problem in terms of public service delivery is just to spend more money on it. But spending more money on inefficient public services just ex- ex- accentuates the inefficiency or reinforces it. Okay, so... Spending a lot, we need to spend more money on education, but the money does need to be spent in a very focused, sensible way. But I think education needs a lot of attention at this juncture, because at the end of the day, Ireland's long term success or failure will be primarily determined by the quality of our people and the quality of our education system. And I think the third area that needs a lot of attention is the whole climate change agenda. And I do believe that financial incentives are required to get people to do what needs to be done in terms of addressing the climate agenda. So they're they're the three areas I would focus on. But what's going to happen on the 12th of October, they will stand up and between them, they'll speak for the two ministers for probably an hour to an hour and a half. They will announce many tweaks to the whole expenditure and taxation system. And as I say, we will all wake up the following morning very, very marginally uh, better off or less well off, depending on the measures that are introduced. I remember when Joan Burton was Minister for Social Welfare in that budget, um, she announced, I think it was an increase of five euro per week in child children's allowances. And the cost of that was about 65 million in a full year. Um so we all woke up the following morning, those of us with kids under the age of 18, slightly better off, okay? Um, but a lot of people got that money um, who didn't need it, okay? What I would have, I, I did advocate the following day, I was really critical of that move. Um, if you had directed that $65 million at one area, whatever it is, disability, special education, whatever, you would actually make a meaningful difference. Whereas spreading that 65 million over hundreds of thousands of different people 
had no real impact at all. And that's the problem. It's the scattergun approach to fiscal management that does really... Um, so it sounds to me that the, me the media is at fault here because, of course, yeah. all of the main news outlets, papers, RTE and the rest, uh, lead with the headline, five euro on this, that or the other, this benefit, that allowance, whatever. And it's it's a, it's an exercise in deflection. Instead of saying, Minister does basically sweet FA, makes no difference to anything, and what was the point? That should be the press the day after the budget. Instead, they lead with special budget supplements, pages and pages and pages of announcements, to which you and I, have, in fairness over the years, have contributed. Um, that's the circus which which is demanded. It's a bit like economic forecasting, Jim. You know, you and I can go on and on about economic forecasting is pointless. Why does anybody do it? But we still keep getting asked to do it. And as you say, with the budget, we'll still make, you know, a decent living out of providing budgetary analysis for people that demand it. And we'll wonder why are people demanding this stuff when it really doesn't matter. And what matters is actually what's not being done. Chris, yeah. I, I remember um, many years ago, for Business and Finance magazine, which I contributed to both anonymously and in my own name at the time, um, anonymously because I worked for Bank of Ireland and one had to be totally politically correct and careful at all times. So I wrote under a pseudonym for years. But I remember in my own name writing a history of budgets going back over um, budgets and ministry finance over a number of years. And I remember writing about Rory Quinn, for example, the thing that stands out was the colour of his ties on budget day. I mean, budgets have always been a circus. They have always attracted all of this uh, ridiculous attention. It's much ado about nothing, uh, but that, but that's the system. Um, one thing I'd just like to say that might be of um, interesting information for listeners um, about the breakdown of taxation, just to show where the money comes from, because... When the government makes changes to capital gains tax, for example, there's a big, um, a lot of controversy around it because when Charlie McCreevy famously slashed the capital gains tax rate, the left went mad and they still go mad about it, despite the fact that the rate has gone back up again, not to the same level, but it has gone back up again. But, um, and, and the point about that capital gains tax change was that over two years, the take from that tax category actually doubled, okay? Um, so it raised a lot more money, but yet because it flew in the face of the ideological beliefs of the left, they went absolutely berserk about it and continue to go berserk about it. But looking at the breakdown of taxation to where the money comes from, um, in the first eight months of this year, we collected 39 billion in taxation and we will collect around 60 billion in the full year, okay? But of that... 41.9% comes from income tax. So that is by far, that's PAYE. It is by far the biggest component. Um, next is VAT. That's the value-added tax, accounting for almost 25% of the tax take. And then the third piece is corporation tax, which currently accounts for 17.8% of the tax take. And then all of the other tax categories such as excise duty, stamp duty, capital gains tax, capital acquisitions, customs, motor tax. You know, they're all tiny components. But you look at my introductory piece there about capital gains tax. So far this year, capital gains tax accounts for just 0.7% 
of total tax revenues. But yet, if the government turned around and cut the CGT rate in the budget, uh, the left would go berserk again, despite the fact that it is a tiny component of the overall tax take. If you want to influence tax revenues, income tax, VAT and corporation tax, that's where it's at. That's where the bulk of money comes from. Um, on the expenditure side, um, it's 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 certainly more complicated because, uh, you know, many different departments, but health and social welfare account for the bulk of spending as well. I've, in my dim and distant past, built models of taxation for um, the UK's equivalent of the ESRI and also for the British Treasury, the, the British Finance Ministry. I've got some vague knowledge of how these things are modelled, how they're therefore predicted, and how blooming difficult it is to predict these various tax headings. But my instincts, without redoing all those models, tell me that the finance minister is going to get lucky um, and is getting lucky at the moment. We've talked on this podcast several times in recent weeks and months about inflation. And that, of course, has implications for all sorts of things in the economy, but not least for government tax receipts because inflation will boost income tax, VAT, and indeed corporation tax. Corporation tax is being boosted, and I have a hunch, it's only that, will be boosted for quite some time to come by the supernormal profits of the tech sector. And we know where they're all located in Dublin, um, Silicon Docks and all that. So I have a feeling that the finance minister is, is, going to, is already being, because the figures are coming in better than expected on the tax headings, and I think that situation you know, this side of the next recession anyway, is likely to continue. But it just shows how, A, how difficult it is to forecast these things. So you are trying to forecast not just the Irish economy, but the world economy that the corporations are operating in. Um, you've got to get inflation right. You've got to get so many things right. So the numbers that he comes up with for the projections should be taken with a pinch of salt. But the real story, I think, is over how, um, provided the economy continues doing what it's doing and what we think it's going to do in the future. The fiscal situation is, is improving rapidly, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is, Chris. Um, tax revenues in the first eight months, 15% ahead of last year. And we're going to come in with a deficit of less than 17 billion this year, which is big, but it's a lot less big than the 20 and a half billion that was forecast at the beginning of the year. And it could actually be significantly better than that. So there's no doubt about it. Um, the Minister of Finance is looking at the moment. Tax revenues are proving incredibly buoyant. Um, and, you know, I alluded to what's happening on the income tax side, for example. Despite COVID and all that, income taxes in the first eight months, 19% ahead of last year. And I said this before on this podcast in another fora, and it always attracts a lot of vitriolic response. Uh, but what's happening on the income tax side here is that Fewer and fewer people are paying more and more income tax in this country. So it's the very, very progressive nature of the income tax system. And that is something also that many on the left will never admit to or recognize. Uh, they will turn around and talk about other taxes. But if you look specifically at the income tax system in this country, it is incredibly progressive. And it is that progressivity that has kept tax revenue so buoyant over the last um, 18 months particularly. Um, as I said there a second ago, in the first eight months, income tax accounted for just under 42% of the total tax take. Back in 2006, the equivalent would have been about 26%. So income tax is becoming 
an increasingly important part of the tax take. Um, and because of the narrow tax base we have here, the burden of that is falling on fewer and fewer people. So, okay, I, I'm not saying that's a bad thing or a good thing. I'm saying it's the reality. Okay, people can make their own judgments on whether they regard that as good or bad. But don't anyone tell me that our income tax system is not progressive. It bloody well is. Jim, again, without saying it's a good thing or a bad thing, but uh, in terms of the raw statistics, my memory tells me that it's a surprisingly small proportion of the Irish workforce that pays income tax. Is that right? Oh, that 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 is correct. Something like. 40% of workers pay over 90% of income tax. And a large proportion pay no tax at all. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because one of the, one of the principles. Pay no income tax, Chris. Because immediately the left will jump on you and say, but what about VAT and other taxes on spending? Income tax, the lower income workers pay very little, if any. And everybody pays VAT. That's absolutely right. Yes. I stand, I stand corrected. Okay, Jim, we should probably call it there, um, unless you've got anything burning that you want to say. Uh, I do think that there's going to be lots to talk about um, in terms of fiscal policy, both the general principles that we've outlined in today's podcast, but lots of detail, lots of different agencies from IBEC to um, Father Sean Healy are making budget submissions and everybody in between over the next, they've already done so and will continue to do so. And so there is going to be lots to talk about. And I do think in the spirit of trying always to say what would be a meaningful budget, comparing it to what the actual budget is, is also going to be important. Not the only thing we're going to talk about over the next couple of weeks, but it is going to be, I think, fairly significant. Yeah, can I just make one point? Uh, as we speak, Chris, um, a headline has come up from the Centre Statistics Office showing that Irish house price inflation has jumped to a three-year high of 8.6%. Uh, so therein uh, is encapsulated one of the big uh, problems facing the Irish economy at the moment. It's what's happening on the housing market and it just continues to get worse. Which is also true of many other economies. One of the things that I think, again, talking about myths uh, that permeate our discussions about all sorts of things, we t- often talk about housing as if it's just exclusively an Irish problem or a British problem or an American problem, where in fact, it's a global problem in many cases, certainly in the developed world, and something we've talked about before, and something we'll come back to again. But you know, these are these are big problems. If you could fix housing, health and infrastructure, you'd have a blooming good economy, wouldn't you, in any of those three economies. So again, topics for another day. Thanks, Chris. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. On the other hand, we hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.